Well, thank you so much for coming today. If you have your Bibles, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 18. So if you'd turn there, that'd be great. Now, how many of you remember 7th grade? Anybody remember 7th grade? Two of the best years of my life by far. Um, no, I'm just kidding. But, um, but uh, you know, I'm the baby of my family. And um, in the 7th grade, I had this nickname that I still feel like, like I'm trying to correct in my life. My nickname, uh, according to my sister's friends, my sister's going to be here today, I think, in the next service. But, uh, so I thought this was a great day to use this illustration. Um, but uh, my, my nickname was the fattest wall of all. Okay, that was my nickname by, by our friends. And, uh, and I thought, man, I, uh, I, my mom would say, you're not fat, you're just husky. Uh, you're husky, and husky's good. And, and so I had husky jeans, and, and it was good. Um, but I remember seventh grade in Coach Dwiggins. Uh, Coach DeWiggins, in my mind, was this giant of a man. He's probably normal size, but in my, I still see him through seventh grade eyes. And I remember the first meeting of basketball. Uh, it was a basketball meeting, and, and Coach DeWiggins is given this, like, intense pep talk about, uh, you know, a seventh grade basketball coach pep talk. Have you ever, I don't know if you ever got to experience that, but it was outstanding, life-changing. And, um, and, and he looks at me and says, all you jelly bellies are going to lose some weight. And I was like, I think, I'm, I think that's me. And that he was talking about it. And, 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 you know, it was Coach DeWiggins that taught me that incredible lesson in life that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. You ever, have you learned that? I don't think Coach DeWiggins coined that phrase. But, but you know, when I look at our world, it's, it appears, by all appearances, we're getting a little soft in our world. We have air conditioning everywhere. We have instant hot water, uh, right? We have, uh, we have what this guy has made for us. Y'all know this guy? Let's get that picture up. Y'all know that guy? Don't, don't say it out loud. But, but that guy, I met him a couple of weeks ago, and I, he was at this hotel I was in. And, and how many of you know who this guy is? Raise your hand. How many of you do not know who this guy is? Okay, you're going to know it here in a second. The only thing that would make this picture cooler is if the Flex Seal guy uh, would have been there, and I could have gotten him in that picture too. That would have been super cool. Um, but this guy, uh, I walked up to him a couple weeks ago. I was at, at the Museum of the Bible, and, uh, and, and he was at the hotel. We'd come back from dinner, and he was in the hotel, and I walked up to him, and I said, hey, dude, um, I got I to gotta meet you. Um, and, and, and so we met him, and I thought, man, I got to have a picture. I'm a pastor from Oklahoma, and you're the my pillow guy, okay? And so I, I've totally got to have my picture made with you because this will be a great sermon illustration someday, and, and this is the best I got uh, today. But, um, but, but, you know, he's made a ton of money on comfort, you know, on, on, and we have so much comfort today. And we're in 1 Samuel 18, which is the life of David and Saul. And you see this this really amazing story unfolding through the book of Samuel. And David is going through some real trials. And we just sang this song that I don't want us to miss, the message of it. We talked about waiting on the Lord. And there are times in our lives when we will have to wait on the Lord. We will have to go through difficult times and go through trials, and go through periods of of training. And, And God is purposeful in our lives. 
God helps us and leads us. And, and in, in 1 Samuel 18, you see, uh, and we're, we've got an ambitious goal today because what we're going to try to uh, cover a little bit today is, is 1 Samuel 18 through 23. And as we look at uh, kind of a, a big picture view of these chapters, what I want to notice is, is basically David's life in Saul's house and then David's struggle with Saul. This is very important for us to understand in Scripture and to wrestle with because it, by, it's interesting as you think about this. We, we looked last week at 1 Samuel 17 when, when David killed Goliath. And, and you would think that Saul and, and David would be like, oh my goodness, thank you, David. You have rescued us. And, and you would think that this would produce this great relationship for a long time. But what you find in the scriptures as, this, as Samuel unfolds and, and as the book of Samuel unfolds, you see this tension between Saul and David kind of get crazy. It gets out of control. And it's interesting, in chapter 16, we saw that, that David was anointed to be the next king by Samuel. And this is a kind of a, this is not how things normally progress because most of the time kings would pass on like what we see in, in England right now and the tension with the, the British monarchy because they're passing it on by family line. But you see something different. God had taken the king, kingdom away from Saul and said, look, there's going to be a, I have a king and it's not you, Saul. It's not any of your family. It's going to be David. And Saul is struggling with this. And it's interesting, as you look at how God began this masterful plan of putting David into the proper place. And I think it's interesting that Samuel had already said to Saul, look, you're done. But yet, there's a decade or so of this trial of David, of, this, of David running from Saul and, and this amazing tension. And, and, when, and we're going to look at that over the coming weeks, but, but, but let's, let's understand this period of time is a period of preparation. And I think it's, it's beautiful to, to, to notice and pay attention to and recognize. You see, because after, after David killed Goliath, David had this reputation of kind of being the Messiah of Israel. Uh, the, the, the Messiah kind of means the anointed one. In, in, in Hebrew, it's the anointed one. David was the anointed one. And now we see this relationship unfold. And what we're going to read together is, is chapter 18, starting in verse 1. And, I, and we're going to, I think this, these few verses kind of encapsulate it kind of gives the depiction of all the tension that's going on in the life of David, in the life of Saul. So stand with me and let's read this text together um, as we kind of prepare for God's word today. Okay, it says in verse 1, chapter 18. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So the Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. 
As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet, the king, meet King Saul, with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the woman, women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, David his tens of thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. And this is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Maybe seated. Now, we, we, we follow that practice often in our church because we just want to recognize God's word to us. And I think it's, a, it's an important remembrance. So, so what we see in this, as this chapter unfolds, it's interesting because in, in verse 1, you see that, that, that David gets this, develops this friendship with Jonathan, this love for Jonathan. Then, then you see Saul's anger coming. In, 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 in verse 2, the Hebrew's really strong here as, 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 the, as Saul says, I'm not going to allow you to go back home. Saul, it's really interesting, that, that is a, in the original language, that is this strong statement that I am, I am not permitting him to go home. And it's interesting, right here is the moment that Saul brings David into his royal family. And what he begins to do is do everything he can to sway David, to watch David. And so it's, as, as the, and it starts out really well. As you see this, Jonathan made a covenant with David. Jonathan loves David. He, it's, it's like they were instant friends the moment they met. And, and what's interesting about this friendship is it continues way on. Even, I mean, generations this friendship lasted. Because David was always faithful to Jonathan and his descendants. And, and, and I want to just say something about this relationship. Because one of the things that's, that's popular in our in modern liberal scholarship right now is there's a lot of people that will look at the relationship between David and Jonathan and they will ascribe this homosexual love to that or this homosexual relationship and i just want you to know that is a that, that is a modern view and that is a ridiculous view that is not the relationship that Jonathan and David had they had this loyal lasting friendship and it was it was powerful. And what's and you look at it, it it's an amazing friendship because Jonathan, verse 4, um, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and sword and his bow and his belt. Now, now this is so big because you have to understand the context because the Philistines, they had all the technology. They had the armor and they had the, uh, the, the bronze and they were one of the first... Um, peoples in, in the history of the world that knew how to work with these things. And, and so very few people in Israel had armor. And Jonathan loved David so much that he said, I'm giving you my, my armor, my sword. And the magnitude of this gift is incredible when you think about it and understand the history of it. Um, and he gives him these things. And David went out, it says in verse 5, he was successful wherever Saul sent him. And Saul was like, okay, look, David, I, I need you. I'm going to send you to these places. And he's incredibly successful. And, and, and he became a man of war. And that's one of the things we know about David. He was an incredible man of war. And, and this was good, it says, in the sight of all the people and in the sight of Saul's servants. 
And, and in so you see, in chapter 18, things start out well. But then it goes south really fast because as they were coming home, David returned, it says, from striking down the Philistine. And, and the women came out, and they're celebrating David. And they say, look, David killed his, his tens of thousands. And Saul, you just killed your thousands. And a good leader would go, yeah, look how we won. That's what a good leader says. We won. And it doesn't matter who got the credit or who, it's, it's we won. But Saul wasn't a good leader. Saul's kingdom is being ripped from him. Saul is in this place of, of, of rebellion against God. And, and this is the, the, the reality of Saul's life. And so then, as these chapters unfold, you see Saul trying to kill David four separate times. Now, how do we interpret this? How do we understand this? You know, it's, you see Saul's jealousy out of control. And, and jealousy is a, is a dangerous struggle for us. One of my um, guys that used to be in my Sunday school class, but now he's the president of Oklahoma Baptist University. And uh, so he's way smarter than I, I, I. My Sunday school class has no, had no contribution to his scholarship. But I, but I want to tell you about Heath Thomas. He writes this about jealousy. He said, jealousy is the scab you keep picking only to have the wound fester. Jealousy is a hunger you simply cannot satisfy. The more you eat, the emptier you feel. It forces you to feed it once again. Jealousy is a pain that will not abate. It persists and pounds us until we are pushed to the point of no return. Jealousy is a terrible and harsh master. And this is what's going on in Saul's heart. He is so jealous of David. Now, now point number one is important for us, and I pray we get this. Because now we got to remember that this is a message to God's people. And, and, and we've got to hear this as the people of God. Point number one is this. Saul's downward spiral speaks to the progressiveness of sin. And I want you to recognize, and we've got to believe and, and, and realize that sin is progressive. I mean, definitely Saul felt these talons of jealousy that dug into his heart. But there's more to, to, more to Saul's downward spiral than just jealousy. And, we, and we're going to look at this. And it's interesting that even though Samuel anointed David and God said, I'm removing you, Saul, there's still a decade of Saul as the king. It reminds me a little bit of the questions I've always had. I've always thought, Lord, why didn't you just take him out right then? Why didn't you just remove him immediately? And it's like what I've always wondered, God, why didn't you just, you defeated Satan on the cross. Why do you let him run havoc right now? And, and all I know is that God's plan is, is better than my plan. And God is working out a masterful plan in history. And, and you see this going on. But, but when you look at, at Saul's heart, he had, the, the problem is he, he was flat out rebellious to the Lord. He had a rebellious heart. And this is what Saul's struggle is. He had rebellious intentions. And, and all this led him to rebellious actions. And I want us to recognize the danger of rebellion against God. Because often we are tempted, all of us, even, I mean, God's people are tempted to live in rebellion against God. My prayer is that we don't do that. 
We should not do that. In verses 10 and 11, you see here is Saul. He's struggling, and, and, and he hires David. He's, the, he's a musician. He's playing for Saul, and what does he do? Um, he, he throws a spear at him while he's playing his harp. I mean, Saul's trying to kill David four times in these chapters. And, and I mean, it, it's interesting. Talk about, a, I mean, what, remember what Saul promised David? When you killed Goliath, you're, you're now going to be my son-in-law right? This is a bad father-in-law, right? I mean, I, mean, I my father-in-law's sitting in this, uh, is Paul here? I, he may be teaching. He's teaching a class, but I'm grateful. I mean, I've had some conflicts with my father-in-law, but thankfully Paul's never tried to throw a spear at me and pin me to a wall, right? I mean, I just want to commit publicly right now, Emily is getting married on June 5th, and Emily, I will not try to throw a spear at Nathan and pin him to a wall. I just want to publicly commit that. You can hold me accountable not to do that. Um, but Saul is just rebellious. He's struggling. Uh, verse 17, he tries to give, his, give David to his, his daughter Merib, and, and this was a plot to kill him. And David gets out of that. Then, then in verses 21 through 25, now this is just such a interesting, I don't even know what you do with this, but, but you see Saul saying, okay, Okay, um, David, you can marry Michael, my daughter. And, and you know, it was common to have a bride price. And, and so he says, here's the bride price for this, David. Um, I need you to go get a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. That's the bride price. That's a difficult bride price, right? I mean, these guys are not going to part with that willingly. So what did Saul what did David have to do? He had to kill him. I've decided to not gripe about the price of cake anymore, uh, the bride price that I'm paying uh, right here after reading the story. But, but you know, it's crazy. What does David do? He goes out and he kills 200 Philistines. And, and I don't know what the presentation of that looked like for Saul as he experienced that, but it's not comfortable in any way, shape, or form. And but, but, but what do you do with this? You, you see David every time honoring the requests, honoring what he's asked to do. And you see Saul trying to manipulate over and over again. And, and this fourth murder plot that comes in, in, in this, Jonathan saves his life. Chapter 19, you see how, how, 19 and 20, you see Michael saves his life. Jonathan saves his life. The, over and over again, you see Saul's rebellious heart coming at David. And it's destructive. And what does rebellion do? And, and we've got to hear this. Because I, most of the time, as a pastor, I sit with believers that are just rebelling against God. It's, it's like this, there's a funny YouTube video called The Honest Preacher. I don't know if you've ever seen it, it's really funny. You've got to Google it sometime, not right now. Um, but, but The Honest Preacher, basically the preacher gets up and says, hey, to his people, stop it, stop it, follow the Lord. And, and see, this is the problem so often we've, we, we don't, we, don't realize that rebellion causes you to ignore God's counsel. 
And when what I pray we do as a people that we, we say, Lord, we will not ignore your counsel. Saul, what is he doing over and over again? He's ignoring the counsel of God. What is, and rebellion does this. Rebellion causes you to ignore the counsel of God. Rebellion causes me to ignore the counsel of God. And I pray that we are convinced, Lord, it's never good to ignore your counsel. Rebellion, it makes you think incorrectly. Saul is not thinking correctly. David loves Saul. And you see this love just over and over again. He loves him deeply. And what, what's interesting is, is what does rebellion do? It causes you to not think right. This is why when you submit to the Lord, what does God do? He transforms our mind. He helps us think right. And I'll be honest with you, one of the things that, that I am grateful for the Word of God in my life is the Word of God helps me think correctly. Because there are times when I am left to myself, I don't think right. And you won't either. And this is why I think we need to recognize Saul is not thinking right. Rebellion causes you to think incorrectly. You know what else rebellion does? It moves you to, to, to take matters into our own hands. And this is the problem with Saul. Like with the song we sang, let's wait on the Lord. We often want to take matters into our own hands and go our own way. And for us as a body of believers, as followers of Christ, for us to recognize, Lord, we will wait on you. We will learn to trust you. We will learn to wait on your timing. We won't take matters into our own hands. And I pray we see this. But see, this is rebellion out of control. Remember what 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 through 3 says? Um, I've, I've got it on the screen. This is in the NIV version because it's how, how I memorized it. It's there, uh, therefore rid yourself of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, wait, envy, hypocrisy. I get them mixed up. Hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Is that close? Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. And see, we're to rid ourselves of these things. And see, sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we lean into those things, malice, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. And then the Bible moves us, let's get rid of those things in our lives. Let's think rightly. How do we think rightly? We allow the Spirit of God to move us and lead us and shape us and help us think. Now, it's interesting as you, and point number two is important. I want us to recognize and notice in these chapters how David's struggle in Saul's house shows how trust is learned through trials. And then this is a very important thing to understand because even in our churches, we get these messages of comfort all the time, that God wants you to be comfortable. God wants your path to be easy. And nowhere in Scripture does it say that. Nowhere in the Scripture does it say that our path will be easy. And, and, and I would encourage you to not follow those preachers that lead you down that path because it's not the right path. It's not the biblical path. And you see that, that, that in, the, in this journey of, of, of David's 
relationship with, with, with Jonathan, with, with Michael. You see these, these, these relationships with the priest and, 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 and Ahimelech, this interesting story with Ahimelech you see in this chapter, these chapters that, that trials taught David about the protection of God. One of the things that you see is, as, as David fled Saul, as Jonathan helped him escape, what did he do? He went to Samuel. Samuel, help me. And guess what? God's prophet helped him. And you see David learning that the trials showed him about the protection of God. And I don't know about you, I've, I've experienced this. When I've gone through trials, I've learned that, God, you see me, you protect me, you guide me. And, and, and this is the reality, the experience of a believer when we trust the Lord even in the midst of trials. Trials taught David about the provision of God. You see this, and I want you to recognize that even in the midst of trials, God will provide for you. God, God, God is a provider. And you see this incredible story of Ahimelech as, as David is hungry and his men are hungry and they eat the bread of the presence. Now this could be a whole sermon in and of, in and of itself. But, but this is the bread in the temple, and, and this is the, think about this, the bread of the presence of God. Now, 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 when you go through a trial, and maybe you're in a trial right now, let me tell you something, the presence of God changes everything. That when the presence of God is with us, oh my goodness, mountains seem different. Why? Because I start looking at it from God's view rather than mine. And, and this is what we need to do as believers, as followers of Christ, to say, Lord, let us notice this through your perspective, not mine. And these are trials. This is beautiful. We see David learning about the protection of God, the provision of God. But we also see these trials taught David about the sustaining power of God. And God's power is sustaining. You know, um, uh, I want you to... Look with me, it's 1 Samuel 21. Turn over to 21, verse 10. Um, David learns the sustaining power of God through trials. And I want to point this out. In verse 10, it says, David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of, of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now, now let's, let's understand this. This is in Gath, right? You know about Gath. Remember Gath, right? Where was Goliath from? Gath! This is Goliath's hometown. Now think about this. David is running, and where's he running? He's hanging with the Philistines in Goliath's hometown. And then, guess what happens? They're going, who's this guy? Isn't this the one that they sang that song, David has killed his tens of thousands and Saul his thousands? Who did he kill? What, what kind of people did he kill? Philistines. What city is he in? Philistines. This is an uncomfortable moment right here. <laughs> This Hebrew scholar that the Callisons and, and I got to hang out with, he was talking about this as one of the lowest points in David's life. 
This is one of the lowest points in his life. Verse 12, it says in 21, And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane. Insane in their presence, in their hands, and, and made marks on the door, and he made marks on the doors of the gate and, and let spittle run down his beard. And then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And Del, Del Brainerd, this Hebrew scholar, pointed to this fact that, 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 that David, think about this. Think of the bravery he showed in, against Goliath. Think of the courage that he had. Think of his trust in the Lord that he exemplified. And yet, he's in this place, and what does he do? Spit runs down his beard and his face, and he's acting crazy. Not because, because he's wanting to save his life. You know, Dale, I want you to flip over to something. This is, just quickly do this, Psalm 133. Look at this. Dale says, told me that, that he thinks that this psalm, this psalm of ascent that David wrote, was David looking back on this moment in Gath. In Psalm 133, it says this, how good and pleasant it is, brothers, when brothers live in harmony. Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when, when brothers live together in harmony. It's like fine oil on the head running down on the beard running down on Aaron's beard and onto his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon falling on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord appointed the blessing, life forevermore. Now, and I've read that, and I've never really thought of, I've never really understood what it meant. But Dale said, when you look at that psalm, you have to really understand the Hebrew, and you have to understand geography. Because a priest, when, when the priest would walk in, it's different than our culture. It's different than when, 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 a, when, when a pastor walks in, okay? When a priest walked in, if we were in the Jewish synagogue, we would smell the priest when he walked in because the oil smells so good. And, and, and for David, when the priest walked in, it felt like, oh, it smells so good. And this is like the presence of God. And, and it just gives so much comfort and so much, so much joy. And it's interesting as David thinks back on Gath and this time when spit is running down his beard and just the stench of that, the smell of that and the, the unpleasantness of that and the, and the devastation of that moment. He goes, no, no, when, when brothers are in unity, oh, it's like oil so much oil flowing off of Aaron's beard, and it's so refreshing. It's overwhelmingly refreshing. You see, David is in this time of disunity. You know what, what I think is interesting? The, uh, the impact of Mount Hermon is Mount Hermon, the geography, that's where the, the rain would come on that mountain, and it would flow down that mountain in this desert place, and because of that water, things grew like crazy. And see, when, when brothers are in unity, oh, it's a blessing to the Lord. Unity 
of God's people impacts a dark world like nothing else, right? Disunity among God's people is crippling. I see this in churches. I see this in life. That, that the unity of God's people is life-giving. And, and I think David, in, in writing Psalm 133, is looking back at this moment in Gath when it was so low. And he's pointing to the fact that, that unity is one of the biggest stumbling blocks to the anointing of God. It's also one of the biggest stumbling blocks to the anointed of God. Notice that grammar. Disunity is a stumbling block to the anointing of God, for God's anointing on our lives. But disunity is also a stumbling block to the anointed, to the people of God. And this is why I pray for our church to be unified. I pray we are a body that forgives one another, that walks through life together. You know, and you can, you can see through these trials, all these things that David learns. And, and you, can, you can agree with Jesus' brother, his little brother, when he wrote, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of many kinds, because the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. See, James is right. The trials are good for us. Trials are, are, are helpful for us. And, and in this passage, as we wrap up today, we've got to recognize that, that all through the story of David, David is not a relatable one to us necessarily. David is a, is a type of Christ. You see, the Old Testament stories point to Jesus. They point to, to the Savior, the Messiah who, who came. And, and you see in the struggle of Saul, is Saul is the, is the uh, antithesis, the, the opposite of a broken Savior, he, or of a Savior. He's, he's a broken Savior. And David is this picture of, of the true Savior. And point three is important. And I want you to see this, and I pray we see this today, that Christ is the only unbroken Savior in the world. He is. There's no other plan, no other way to heaven than, than, than through Christ. And I look at the saviors that people are seeking in the world. Uh, self is a broken Savior. People are, are wanting to go their own way, take matters into their own hands. And my prayer is that you learn the, the life that comes when you submit to God. And you surrender to the Lord. Because life begins when you say, Lord, we hand you the keys. You are our Savior and our Lord, our guide, and our help. See, don't be in, you're, you're a bad Savior. You can't save yourself. Don't try. You know, money is a broken Savior. And I see it all the time. People freaking out right now over the stock market. Oh, my goodness. Look. God is your provider. Trust him. Trust him. He is a provider like no one else. Trust him. Power is a broken savior. I see this all the time. I'm trying to, you know, learn this lesson all the time. Lord, it's not about self-power or, or power is found. I'm discovering is in submission to the Lord. That's where power is. So Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Power is found in submitting to the Lord. Sexuality is a broken Savior. 
goodness, this is a dominant issue in our culture. I mean, definitely God has made us sexual beings, and sex is a blessing and a gift to us. But God created sex to be placed under the most sacred relationship known to mankind, which is marriage. And it's why every time we get sexuality outside of that umbrella of marriage, it's, it's going to do nothing but destroy you. And, and, and whether it is your sexual identity or your sexual um, desires that are out of control, let me tell you something, God has a plan for your sexuality. But I know many people that make sex a God. And I'll tell you, it's a destructive sin. It's a destructive Savior. And it's broken. You know what else is a relationship's? are often saviors with people. I hear people say, if I just had a husband or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a wife or whatever. Look, the greatest relationship we need is a relationship with Jesus. Do you have that? I mean, 1 Peter chapter 1, 3 through 7, talks about this relationship with Jesus. The impact of it, it says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hear this, in his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And it's kept in heaven for you. You see, there, there, there's, there's a Savior who came. Ah, oh, don't you know him? Don't you know the joy of submitting to him and surrendering to him? You know, you can know him. How? Well, it's, it's amazingly simple that people often miss it. Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We've fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his love for us in this. That even though we were sinners, Christ died for you. And then Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you know that you could receive that gift today? We're going to have an invitation, and Joe, I want you to come. And, and maybe you're here today, and, and God has just revealed something to you. Maybe it's your rebellious heart. Maybe you know Christ as your Savior, but, but the reality is your heart is rebellious today. You know, what's interesting is you see over and over again God's patience with Saul. Why did God not immediately remove him? Could it be that God was drawing his heart to him? But he kept going, no, God. No, God. There's this interesting moment in this chap these chapters where Saul prophesied. Could that be a moment of God saying to Saul, Saul, come to me. Turn to me. 
But you see the devastation of a man who kept pushing the voice of God away. Are you doing that? Can I just be in front of you and say, stop pushing him away. Come to him. We're going to have some people down front. I think Amber's going to be down front for ladies, and if you need to talk to somebody, and a couple of our staff members are going to be down front. And uh, we invite you to respond to God today. Would you?